welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, hope you're having a great week this week. So my guest on this episode, and this is a very, very good one, I must say, is Joseph Mossel, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Ibex Medical Analytics. So Ibex Medical is a next generation cancer diagnostic startup, and they aim to reduce diagnostic error and improve care. And I'll tell you about that in a second. So over Joseph's career, he served as a software engineer, product manager, leadership roles in startups, corporates, and nonprofits, and he's taken products from inception to multi-million dollar businesses. He's got an MSc in computer science from Tel Aviv University and an MSc in environmental science from VU Amsterdam. And Ibex is doing some awesome, awesome stuff. They are completely changing pathology by using algorithms to analyze images, detect and grade cancer in biopsies and point to other findings with high clinical importance. They've got a couple of different products that do first read and second read. You'll hear all about that on the episode, but long story short, they are very tangibly saving lives. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. So Joseph, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well, James. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Joseph? So right now I'm at our offices in Tel Aviv, not so far from, from the beach. Oh, lovely. Lovely. I've been to Tel Aviv and uh, yeah, the city is literally on the beach, isn't it? I mean, that must be, must be lovely for uh, your lunchtime walks and things to stroll out onto the beach. That's even better. Every day I start my day by cycling all around the Tel Aviv beach. Wow, it is a big stretch of beach as well. That's a, it's a fair way to cycle. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's when I exercise. <laughs> nice. Um, so Joseph, look, I mean, it's a pleasure having you on. Obviously, everything that you've done in your career is so fascinating, so interesting. That's led you led you into healthcare eventually, anyway, and health tech eventually. Although it didn't obviously start out that way, and and everything that you're doing with your company is really kind of cutting edge stuff, which is awesome. Um, and I can't wait to get into it with you. And so, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, Joseph, would you mind telling us your story? Yeah. So, I uh, my academic background is in uh, computer science. I uh, studied in the University of Tel Aviv, uh, and already early on, even there, I was interested in uh, a lot of things, so studying computer science and mathematics, but also dabbling a bit. I had the opportunity to do some uh, linguistics and psychology and ended up doing my, uh, my master's in computational neuroscience. So that was really fascinating. And mm. After that, uh, started out my career as a software engineer, algorithmic developer, in a small startup, very interesting place, and, and, and did that for a while. Um, generally, a theme in my career and my life is that I um, uh, tend to do things which are more general. And so I, I shifted from being really a specializing, a specialist algorithm developer. Uh, into uh, product manager, which kind of gives you a uh, wider scope. Mm. Touch the, the, the technology, the product, the business. And I think that's really a great point to start uh, a career in tech. Because uh, really, it's uh, in a way, the product manager is a mini CEO. Um, so that company got acquired. Uh, 
by EMC, a large American corporation. And by the way, at that time, I was doing enterprise software, nothing to do, nothing related to healthcare, what I'm doing today. And I spent a few years working for, uh, for, for EMC and uh, learning how to take a product that we were selling to a handful uh, of customers and answering this very American question, uh, but does it scale? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and we learned really how to take a product and then scale it, how to make it uh, possible to sell it at scale, install it at scale, support it at scale. And we took what was a, a really small business uh, starting out into what uh, ended up being uh, more than 100 million uh, revenue business. Wow. Yeah. So that, that, that was a very interesting uh, experience. I learned a lot. Um, also learned that I'm not sure I want to keep on working for large corporations. Uh, took a break after a few years and uh, moved to the, uh, the Netherlands and did the second master's in uh, environmental resource management. Wanted to try something else and I've always been uh, passionate about uh, the environment. Nice. Uh, so uh, I did that degree. It was an interesting period. I got married, had my first child. Uh, and then uh, when, when finished uh, with that, came back to, to Israel uh, and helped uh, start a very interesting uh, organization, a nonprofit. Uh, it was Israel's uh, National Biodiversity Assessment Program. So the, the, the objective there was, was to help uh, decision makers, people who uh, manage natural resources, manage nature in Israel, uh, to give them hard data, which they can use for their uh, work. We were running a national biodiversity monitoring program. Fascinating time. I was managing people. I was managing birders. If you want, that's an interesting breed of people to, to manage. Uh, we're going out into the field and counting birds and, and things like that. Um, yeah. So, and there also was a, that was the first time I was actually. Um, um, managing an organization, so I was general director general of that organization. Sure. Uh, so a lot, a lot of uh, interesting experiences. But after uh, some years of doing that, uh, I came to the conclusion that the, kind of where I came from, where my, my, I think I have better potential, greater potential, uh, is in tech. Uh, mm -hmm. So I decided to go back to tech. Um, but it still was important for me to do uh, something which I felt is, is, is meaningful and, uh, and important. Uh, at that time, I met uh, co-founder of uh, Ibex, uh, Chaim Linhart, uh, brilliant um, algorithms AI person, and we hit it off really well. And we we're also very well aligned in that we want to do something uh, meaningful. And then we started to look into healthcare. We thought there's a great opportunity in Israel to do things in this field uh, because we have a very good uh, healthcare system here. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of medical data which is available here, not necessarily in other places. Yeah. There's also a very, uh, very, very strong talent uh, pool uh, for uh, algorithm developments. And, and that, that was our starting point. What got us really going into what we're doing now, AI for cancer diagnostics, uh, was a conversation I had with, uh, or we had together with my brother-in-law, he's a pathologist, and, and we learned there 
the, that the same process that happened in radiology, maybe about 20 years ago of shifting from analog to digital is happening now in pathology. And we did, let's say, one plus one, came to the conclusion that there's a lot of startups doing AI and radiology. Why not do the same in pathology? Sure. I mean, it, it's it's a hugely diverse background that you've got, isn't it? You've obviously started off product manager, which you said is mini CEO, which is which in itself is quite interesting. Obviously, that that sort of generalist touching on lots of different parts of a business. You've gone through a really early acquisition. You've been in enterprise software, which is obviously, as you said, nothing to do with healthcare. You've been part of these organizations that have wanted to scale. And so you've really been part of, I guess, proper business, I'd say, at, at you know, the early stages of your career, which I, I imagine was quite formative. And it seems like th- th- that awareness as well, that you didn't just want to work for a big company was was really important for you because then it seems that there was a bit of a switch to finding finding what was meaningful for you. And the way that you talk, it seems that you're very, very impact-driven, which I think a lot of the people that come onto this podcast are because you mentioned that tech had the potential to do something meaningful and that you wanted to do something meaningful and important. And you started a non-profit for which you were director general and all those things things and then obviously finding your way into healthcare after that. I mean, when you were going through that journey, what was motivating you to make all of those different changes in your career? I mean, what I often say is that I just followed what I enjoyed and I just tried to make these incremental changes to my career at every point and it sort of led me to where I am. I mean, did you have a grand plan of where you wanted to be and what you wanted to be doing as founder and CEO of your own company and, and, and an entrepreneur or was it kind of more... More luck than judgment, what would you say? Yeah, first of all, you're really spot on with identifying that I'm uh, impact driven. So um, that's something I figured about myself early on in my career, that that's really what, what, what drives me, that to feel that I'm working in a place, both that I have influence and impact within the organization where I'm working, and also um, more generally speaking, that uh, what I do has impact uh, in the world. That's actually a really good point. Sorry to interrupt you, but I've I've actually never thought about that and I've never heard that articulated in such a way that being impact driven there's there's the internal and the external, right? As you've said because I, I now that you've said it I feel the same. Being impact driven, I want to make an impact in the organization I'm in, which obviously you can do as a leader of it, but then also I want that organization to be making impact to the world in which it is in. And so it is kind of it's got those two tiers. Yeah, that's really interesting. Never, never, never heard that before. Really like it. Yeah, and, and about the the second uh, part of, of your question, no, I've never been good with making five year plans for my uh, my <laughs> or setting a goal where I want to be five years from now. It's really been kind of uh, yeah, moving from step to step, from opportunities as they come along, identifying maybe that. Where I am now, I'm not completely happy, and and uh, that I have to to change. I, actually, for me, I think an important realization was that, and this is maybe advice for anyone who's looking at um, career change: you can't wait and sit until you identify the perfect opportunity for you, because you're not going to hmm. know what is it. If you're unhappy now, it's not 
it's, it's difficult to know where are you going to be happy? What's the, really the best thing for you? And sometimes you need to rock the boat and do something else. And then you start this process of change, which uh, hopefully eventually will end up uh, where you want it to be, which you might not know in advance where that is. And that, that's exactly what happened to me, I'd say. It's a kind of a maybe a five-year process where I went through different changes uh, and ended up where I am now, where I have to say really feeling the most fulfilled I've ever been in my career, feeling that uh, my aspirations and ambitions are aligned uh, with what I'm actually doing. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense from what you've said, because obviously taking, taking that internal and external thing, obviously your, your own ambition as, you know, founder, entrepreneur, leader of a company that's, that's doing very well, as well as the fact that that company exists in healthcare, exists in order to make a healthcare system more efficient, which is then going to impact the lives of patients and, and all the rest of it. I can, I can understand why that is fulfilling and I can understand that from a very personal perspective as well, because I think one of the things I suppose for me when I was going through as a clinician is that ironically, I didn't feel that internal impact. Actually, I didn't feel like I was really driving the organization. It more felt that I was just kind of part of it as a clinician for me anyway, because I guess I was an average clinician. I was better at the other things and so i i feel the same that you know having a company in the space is a bit is a bit different because it feels like you can satisfy that internal ambition of your own but also it's within a system externally which is doing great things in healthcare for for everybody so yeah that really chimes with me so let's talk about let's talk about ibex then obviously you mentioned meeting your co-founder and you also mentioned at the end there about about career change and about opportunity and obviously it's very it's very difficult to kind of meet co-founders, quite frankly. It's, it's very difficult to carve out those opportunities. How did you guys meet? And yeah, most people say, it, again, a mixture of luck and judgment. But um, yeah, talk, talk to me about meeting your co-founder. It's through a mutual friend. So uh, uh, my co-founder uh, served in the military uh, with an individual, who's an incredible individual by his own right. He, he served in the military. I, he was CEO of the company, the startup where I was working, and uh, we kept in touch over the years. And he kind of uh, identified that uh, both me and my co-founder, it's called Heim Linhart, that both that we were in a similar point in life where we're looking for something uh, new to do. And I think he also employed some judgment that we could work well together. Yeah. He was very right. And we keep on working with them. With this guy still still helping us, and yeah, I think he was uh, he's a good matchmaker. Nice. So I can't I can't really pull a lesson out of people there, other than just keep speaking to your brother in laws <laughs> and like hope that they match you up with people. Um, okay, cool. So let's talk about Ibex then. So you obviously you had the idea. I mean obviously a very good idea in the sense that lots of whether you call it computer vision, whether you call it AI machine learning, you know, all of it was happening and all of it continues to happen in, in radiology. And I completely understand, you know, why couldn't that be the same case in pathology where it's very similar, you're using images, you're looking for patterns, you're looking for changes in those patterns. And so I suppose it then makes sense that from a technology point of view, 
you could apply similar things to get similar results. I suppose it then just depends on, is there enough work for that? Is the business model there? All of those different things. So talk to me about the idea and turning that into reality with Ibex and where you've got to now. I mean, the, the core idea, uh, and at that point we knew very little, was to develop uh, an algorithm and then a product that can uh, do mimic the work of, uh, of a pathologist. And the starting point for that is to understand a bit better what, what, does, uh, what, what do pathologists uh, do. I'll, I'll tell you a, a nice story here. We went to visit the, the chief pathologist of uh, the largest pathology lab in, in Israel, a person called Dr. Judith Zambank. And, and we came to her and we told, told her this um, yeah, yeah, crazy story that, you know, you have now this thing called uh, deep learning. <laughs> uh, and deep learning is really great. It can differentiate between cats and dogs. And we think it can also diagnose cancer. Uh, and she almost literally threw us out of her. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything more offensive to say to a doctor than I can build an algorithm that can do your job. <laughs> well, uh, but this, this, but we're tenacious people, <laughs> and then we met her again and again. And the same Dr. Zambank, she's now our chief medical officer. Nice. She's, uh, she's the clinical brains behind the company. And if you can't beat them, join them, eh? <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and for her, it's really I think it's an, an amazing stage in her career. She's been doing this for, for a long time, and really world-class expert in, in this field. And now suddenly she's involved in the, the next phase of her, the, the next revolution in, in her field. Yeah. And, and what we learned from her and from, from other sources is that there's two uh, major problems in, uh, in pathology. One is very well-known and obvious, and the other is uh, more hidden. The well-known and obvious is that there's simply not enough pathologists in the world. Yeah. Uh, so there's the... Let's say if we look, for instance, in the UK, 97% of pathology labs and NHS uh, report they're understaffed. In Israel, the situation is even uh, much worse. And everywhere you look, people who uh, manage pathology labs, this is their number one problem. How do, we, how do we handle the load? Maybe an anecdote about this. I went to a, a hospital, talked over the head of pathology. So he said, listen, we're six pathologists today. The bad news is that within five years, we're going to be three, and I have no idea where I'm going to hire any more pathologists. The only good news here is that I'm one of the three who's retiring. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so, so that's a very uh, kind of uh, well-known problem. The other, which I'm not sure should come as a surprise, but is less obvious to people, is that pathologists uh, make mistakes. Uh, yeah. Just like anyone else. It's Every not, human makes mistakes, yeah, absolutely. But the impact of a mistake by a pathologist uh, could be that they uh, miss cancer, so the diagnosis is benign in the case which is actually uh, cancerous, or they make a mistake with the grade. Obviously, it can have a profound impact on... on sure. On, uh, could be, I, I won't be exaggerating, exaggerating, it could end up uh, being a death sentence. Sure, sure. Uh, pathologists uh, know this happens. There's not a lot of hard statistics about this. Uh, we have some now uh, because it's hard to even track uh, yeah. how many mistakes pathologists make. But they all knew that. All know they did that. And, and, and these are the two uh, 
that basically the, the, the mission of, of IBEX is to provide patients with a diagnosis which is accurate and in a timely manner. And, and these are the two problems we're, we're, we're solving. So from a technology point of view, how does it work? Yeah, so uh, we've partnered uh, with uh, the largest healthcare provider in Israel. It's called Mojave Healthcare Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they run the same lab I mentioned before, a very large pathology lab, and they have an archive of uh, 6 million pathology slides. We, we have a strategic partnership with them, and we, get, we have access to this archive, so we uh, select slides from there. We work with expert pathologists who annotate these slides that yeah. the different regions. So they say this piece here is cancer, this is inflammation, and this here is fine, it's benign. Uh, we feed this into um, what's known as deep learning, a deep learning uh, framework, and use other machine learning techniques. And the outcome of all of this is an algorithm, a deep learning algorithm that can mimic the work of a pathologist, can identify the different cell types on a biopsy and can synthesize all of this together for a final diagnosis. So this is the algorithm. And using these algorithms, and we have separate algorithms for different tissue types. Today we have already prostate and cancer, uh, prostate and breast cancer uh, already available running in a clinical setting. And we developed two products using these algorithms. The first product is known as Second Read. So this is a safety net for the lab. Uh, the lab does everything they do normally. Reach uh, interesting. And then this is kind of a quality control system. They feed the slides yeah. and the diagnosis into our system. And we raise a flag if we think there's a high, if the algorithm thinks there's a high probability of a mistake. So we deployed this first in, uh, here in Israel, in the lab I mentioned before, uh, IBEX secondary for prostate, uh, about two years ago. This was the first time uh, this kind of algorithm was uh, deployed in a clinical setting in a pathology lab. And within a week after this deployment, the algorithm uh, raised an alert uh, for a case which was diagnosed as benign, and the algorithm uh, correctly diagnosed this was, in fact, cancer. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of a seminal moment for us. Uh, yeah, I hope it doesn't sound a bit uh, cynical, but uh, yeah, I, I'll admit that we went out to celebrate and the whole team went out for lunch. I mean, for the patient here, that they got a diagnosis of cancer, which obviously is not good news. Sure, sure. Uh, but still, much better uh, than getting uh, news two years from uh, in the future telling you you have a high-grade cancer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's – I appreciate why you're saying what you're saying, which is, you know, you've, you know, as a company you celebrated, but somebody's got this diagnosis. But actually, the reality is that that's a very – it's a very, very, very tangible way that you've – changed someone's life and although in the short term they go through something where they realize they have cancer and they have to get it treated the rest of it the chances of them having a better survival are infinitely better right because because of something and i think uh, it's often difficult isn't it for health tech entrepreneurs to, to sometimes know 
what the value is that they've actually brought because they're not close to it. I can remember as a clinician, you know, especially as an anesthetist, when you give a drug, you see the effect immediately. And you, you, you the feedback loop for you as an individual when you are impact-driven is extremely small when you're a doctor, let alone an anesthetist. It's it's micro. Whereas I guess in, in, in the health tech world, the feedback loop is much, much, much slower. It's much, much, much less tangible. And so I can, I can completely appreciate even, you know, when we talk about being impact driven internally with, with leading your organization, I think it is an important thing for you as the leader of the company to celebrate that with your employees and with the people that work with you, because it shows to them what you really value and it gives them the fuel to keep going as to what they do rather than it just being a pure financial reason that you're building the company. So I think, I think actually that's, that's really nice. And although it is tainted with somebody's got a bad diagnosis, the point is, is that you've helped someone in a huge way there. And I think that is worthy of celebration if I can say that. Yeah. I'll just, just mention this context. It is also it's something it's also something that everyone can understand. Yeah. Important to diagnose cancer early and it's bad to, to, to miss this. And really, it's something that also helps us attract talent. Uh, yes. You want to be part of something like this. And a lot of people working in tech, they have this problem. They can't really explain to people what is it that they're doing. I mean, they, they're optimizing. Uh, <laughs> no one really understands. And, and people who work at IBEX, I think that they, they feel proud that they can explain to everyone what they're doing and what the impact is. That's and, a really you know, good point. And, and since then, I mean, we're already deployed um, worldwide in, in different geos, and you know, we're connected to each and every one of our, our systems. They're running on the cloud. So this is now, you know, that was the first time it happened. Uh, but now it's kind of something that happens on a, on a daily basis. But we're still, the entire company wants to know about this, right? So we have, you know, we caught the cancer now in France. Uh, wow. We don't go now anymore and uh, celebrate and go out to lunch for every time that, that it happens. And, yeah, we need, to, uh, well, we need to keep on working. Of course. Uh, no, it's something that really drives the work. You're still uh, yeah. exciting every time it happens. That is really nice. I think the the other thing, thinking about the other side of the people that you're helping here, which is obviously the clinicians, the other thing that I think is really nice is that when you started on this journey, you, you or even in this conversation, actually, you started with saying, we wanted to know what does a pathologist do? And you started there. You didn't think what can we give a pathologist to make things easier or what could that you started with actually trying to solve the genuine problem, which is that when there's not enough pathologists, how do you scale pathologists and how do you make things more accurate when people make mistakes? And I think starting at the point of what does a pathologist do and actually, you know, going in with the, I guess the empathy or, or, or wanting the understanding of what people actually did was, was a, a really nice way to start. I mean, it shows that, you want to you want to listen first before saying do this do that do the other because there are lots of people that wade in to healthcare organizations without truly understanding how department runs and telling people that they need this technology and that technology and they just don't have the they don't have the authority to do so and it falls on deaf ears often because it's very difficult to tell people who exist in a system every day how to do things better when they've never been part of it themselves and so i really like that you went in with that listening 
um, point of view to begin with. And I think what's come out of that is that you are solving a real problem. And I can, I can imagine this from the side of the pathology departments or even the individual pathologists, knowing that that second read means that it will appease their own anxiety of getting things wrong and people coming under harm and all those things, but also it makes them more defensible. It eases a bit of responsibility in the sense that it's not all hanging on their decision. And so I can really believe that from, from the point of view of an individual pathologist, it must make their lives a little bit easier, a little bit less stressful. That's a hundred percent true. I mean, it's a question I'm often asked if pathologists aren't a that we're going to uh, replace them, that isn't the resistance yeah. to what we're doing. I don't see that at all. Pathologists, what keeps them up at night is the possibility that they made a mistake. Exactly. And they know they and they know it's they know that every once in a while they have. And they, you know, they sometimes they go back in their heads <laughs> whether they missed something, maybe they should have done something differently. Yeah. And yeah, we give them peace of mind and they they, they just love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you're selling peace of mind actually, and arguably that's arguably it's priceless. But obviously, you set your price somewhere. So, who who does buy? How have you found selling in healthcare? I know that entrepreneurs that have existed in other sectors, when they come into healthcare, they can often find the sales cycles very long and the process is very difficult and. Obviously, lots of things contributing to a sale, which makes them hard to do and all those things. How have you found, I don't know, I mean, who is the customer? I suppose it is the pathology department or something along those lines. But how, how have you found, I guess, building a business in healthcare compared to other sectors? Yeah. So first of all, it is, uh, it, it is very different than other sectors. I think uh, everyone thinks that what they're doing is unique and unlike anything else. Uh, but I think healthcare is really, <laughs> really different from anything uh, else. Um, we sell to two, we sell to pathology departments, uh, and that, there's two types of organizations where a pathology department uh, can reside. It can be in a hospital, or you have also just these uh, independent uh, labs. Um, sure. They're a bit, uh, and, and what drives these, uh, and that, that's also another complexity of healthcare, the business models are very different uh, in different ge uh, geographies, and they're driven by, by different uh, things. Typically, if you look at the, the private pathology labs, um, they're driven by, um, well, by their bottom line. Of course, they're physicians, they want to do a very good job, but they're also a business, and they need to make a living. Uh, and for them, a uh, key element is really driving, uh, driving efficiency. That's extremely important for them. Yeah. Uh, and these organizations, when you make the case, when you demonstrate uh, how you drive efficiency, how you enable them to improve their bottom line, uh, they can move fairly quickly. It's not that they're not the same as a, as a large hospital system. Uh, we're also selling to hospital systems. Uh, some of them are very large. Um, and yes, there's no way around. It's a long, uh, long sales cycle. Uh, and you need to prove a lot along the way. I mean, the starting point is first to um, convince the clinicians that what you're bringing is a, is a value. Uh, and that typically isn't the longest uh, piece of the process. And that we can uh, do fairly quickly. 
Uh, but then still a lot of the hoops you need to jump through um, until you're able to sell to a large health organization. And we think it's worth doing to these large organizations with very uh, large potential for us to grow and deploy uh, throughout the organization and deploy uh, future products as we come out. And yeah, that's the way we're doing it. Sure. And as you alluded to there, one part of the discussion is always going to be around efficiency. And as part of that, there's always going to be a financial component as well. So whilst, as you've said, it's very easy to, well, relatively easy to convince clinicians because of everything we've talked about with it, with you, with you selling peace of mind, quite frankly, obviously it then comes to a financial director or CFO to, to sign this off from a financial perspective. And that obviously needs to be built in. So with you guys generating those efficiency savings and obviously catching um, cancers that were previously undetected and things like that, how do you as a company display that value proposition financially? Have you found a good way to do that in terms of money that you do save and, and do you have proof points behind that? I mean, how do you go about that? And the reason that I ask, I suppose, is because there will be a lot of entrepreneurs listening that that will be helping with efficiency savings in one way or another. But I know it's, it's a very, very common problem, especially here in the UK with a public healthcare system where it's more about money saving than it is money making. It's, it's very, very difficult to often communicate that, um, that efficiency savings in terms of actual cash in hand financial savings. So I don't know if how you guys do that and whether you've got any, any good advice for people that are trying to do that. Yeah, so first of all, there's a missing piece of the puzzle I need to complete. I didn't complete uh, the story about what's our product uh, set. So what I described so far is the second read. Yeah. We're also developing, uh, we'll be uh, coming out fairly soon, uh, the first read product. Uh, so that, ah, I see. That's not a safety net for the lab. Uh, that's a product that the pathologist actually uses while doing the diagnosis. So this is kind of a computer-aided diagnosis. Uh, it helps the pathologist identify the cancer, uh, marks the regions of interest, and allows them to do their work much, much faster. We have already um, numbers uh, that show that uh, the efficiency gains are quite dramatic. Uh, and, and that's how we drive uh, this case. So pathologists, um, um, being able to make pathologists more productive is extremely valuable, both because there's simply not enough pathologists, uh, but also within a pathology lab, cost of paying a pathologist salary is a substantial part of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so th that's how we, we drive the case with, uh, with these private labs. The value of, so, so that's very clear cut. I mean, that, that value is clear both you know, within a system like uh, sure. NHS or any lab in the world. Efficiency is good. Uh, actually, accuracy, well, everyone, and, and that, that's why I start out by talking about accuracy, because everyone immediately, it's, accuracy is very compelling. It's good mm -hmm. to uh, diagnose cancer. Uh, the business case for that is actually um, more complex to do and depends on, on, on the specific uh, healthcare system you're selling to. Uh, so if I go to NHS, actually I, I can make a pretty strong uh, business case for accuracy because NHS are both paying for the pathology, but they're also bearing the cost of these patients who are misdiagnosed. Yeah. They're yeah. bearing the cost of, of the late diagnosis. So NHS is actually set up uh, well in that sense. You can make this 
uh, case both for efficiency and accuracy, and um, and you know, as advice for uh, entrepreneurs, as also in the end, you need to have uh, health economic studies to prove this. It's not just uh, good enough uh, to say it. So indeed. Um, now, if I go to a private lab, so efficiency resonates. Now they want to be accurate. Every, I mean, one of the the the, the the nice things about doctors everywhere that they want to be good at what they do. They want, to yeah. Uh, so they want to be good, but there's no a lot of the time there's no financial incentive for them to be more accurate. The, the lab gets paid by volume, not by quality. Yeah. Uh, so um, so this is kind of a, you could say for some of our potential customers, this is kind of a, and I think for the healthcare system in general, this is kind of a weak point. There's not not necessarily uh, financial incentives in place everywhere for uh, for better quality. Yeah. So, in terms of what you do with the NHS, then have you guys got much going on here in the UK? So, so the UK is, is an important target market for us, specifically because the UK government is actually investing uh, heavily in pushing uh, AI and technologies like digital pathology. Uh, so we see a lot of potential um, for us there. Uh, I can't talk about everything uh, <laughs> sure. doing there, but we're engaged uh, uh, with some really top institutes on, on, on research projects and these kind of uh, health economic uh, studies. I, I was uh, yeah. Uh, what I can mention is that we've sold the system to a private lab, private pathology lab in the UK called LDPath. Nice. Uh, which they provide pathology services to 24 NHS trusts. Got it. Uh, so there's now already uh, quite a lot of NHS patients who uh, will be very soon enjoying um, the better quality coming out of Ivory Second Read. Yeah, and I must say, you know, from a from a patient perspective here, just as a as a person that that will receive NHS services throughout my life, it's nice to know that there is now a service that will be used that looks at biopsies again and then you know gives that second read and eventually helps with the first read too i think it's really it's really nice to see that that you guys are clearly occupying a space that does improve quality and i like what you said although in a way i don't like what you said about the the fact that it is very difficult to build a business model around accuracy and i completely agree i think that is a a, a failing of our system in some respects that there are very few financial incentives often to, to improve accuracy and it's all about efficiency and money saving quite often as i said particularly in uh in the public sector, although, you know, the public sector will bear the brunt of those that it does misdiagnose because those treatments will be more expensive later down the line, the later things present. It is just a shame that that we don't incentivize accuracy more because I think I, I would like to be part of a system that that was improving quality and did have a focus more on improving the quality and the accuracy of, of these diagnoses and treatments. And I think that probably is one of the next phases for, for our health system, if we can indeed get there. Um, but I guess that the final question that I wanted to ask you, Joseph, was around the future of this space. And obviously with you guys at the cutting edge of it at the moment, with everything that you're doing with, with AI and machine learning, et cetera, and whether you want to call it computer vision or not, or computational biology. 
what do you think is the future of this and and that could be in the next year in the next five years in the next 10 20 50 years i mean where do you think this is going to go in pathology do you think it will ever be automated completely do you think that is the future of it are there different models coming through i mean tell me a bit more about the future of the space um as you see it yeah so i don't want to predict when but uh, at some point algorithms ai will be doing this uh better than, uh, than, than pathologists. And discipline will, uh, will change. And the role of pathologists uh, will not be to do diagnosis themselves, but actually work hand in hand with, with the, the data scientists, with the engineers, and to keep on improving the algorithms. But I don't think that's happening anytime soon. <laughs> think uh, for now pathologists uh, are not at a risk of losing their job and there's not enough of them. Uh, I think what will happen is that, and, and that I think I, I feel confident to predict this will happen within the next five years, is that AI will become an essential tool uh, for practicing pathology uh, that will be considered irresponsible uh, to be doing pathology without AI. So it's not to say that uh, AI is better than the pathologist, but just to say that the pathologist using AI uh, will be much better than a pathologist not using AI. And, and, I, and I think in the way that will also resolve some of these questions about uh, you know, uh, quality and whether there's incentives for that, what, what, hap what will happen at some point will be there will just be a tipping point. The question won't be asked anymore because it will simply become obvious, self-evident that you can't practice pathology without having this AI safety net and have, without having this AI assistant. And, and, and then nobody will be asking for the return on investment. I mean, nobody goes and uh, calculates a return on investment on a microscope. It's simply an essential <laughs> practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so, such a good point. I mean, there's a couple of things there that I like. So I think you're absolutely right to mention the changing role of clinicians as we move into the future. I think that is far more sensible to talk about than the replacing of and all these other things, which frankly is nonsense because there's never going to be a point where an algorithm is spread across the world in a 24 hour period. And you can all of a sudden just get rid of people. Everything's going to happen gradually, as you say, and as things do happen gradually, gradually, the role of clinicians will train change. You know, it, it takes what 10, 15 years to train one to consultant level. If you take it from medical school and all these different things. So there's always a pipeline of these people coming through. And so you can't ever just stop and say we don't need these sorts of people anymore and nor should you want to because of how well trained they are and everything that they know and i completely agree with what you're saying that as as this and i think you're, you're right with the second view thing as well because I, that feels to me a, a really nice way to that the ai will will come in without being threatening because it is purely being helpful it is not stopping what you do. Nothing actually changes. It's just coming in to help you as a safety net. And that's going to build trust because then as it 
agrees with the clinicians more and more and more. And then on top of that picks up the odd mistake, which it is doing trust is going to build between the clinicians and the technology. And I think that is what is completely necessary for it to then become part of the first read because then people are going to be more happy to work with it and be happier to say, well, it could be used here. It could be used there. And all of a sudden, then I think the role has changed because as you say, the the person is then in control of what the algorithm is doing and the forwarding of the algorithm, which then makes the whole of healthcare a lot safer and a lot more effective and a lot more efficient, which really is a, a nice view of it from my point of view. And I think even in the time that I've been doing this podcast for the last couple of years and been in the health tech space now for, you could argue, 10 years, I think the role of AI and, and the way it's felt and the way it's been perceived has changed dramatically. But it does feel now that AI is really maturing and the thoughts around AI are maturing and there isn't the panic anymore. There isn't the worry that it's going to steal jobs. None of that really is the case. It's far more about how can we sensibly adopt these things. And just as you've said, we don't ask for a return on investment on microscopes. I completely see your point. You know, I can imagine if, 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 a, if an algorithm has been sat there doing a second read for a long time, has never interfered with the clinical care from the a clinician's point of view, all it's ever done is pick things up and make things better for the department, the patient and the clinician. Then as I say, as, as soon as that trust builds, which it will be very quickly in that circumstance, I think we're onto a real winner with AI. And I really look forward to, to the time where we can use this stuff and, and, and for it to be imperceptible to the patient, but actually is delivering them a high standard of care. So, um, Love it, mate. Love everything that you're doing. Um, and I think I think you guys are really on something here. And I think it's gonna it's gonna solve a huge problem. And just to say, I guess, I guess thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing from you, Joseph. And the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to just summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about what you're doing at Ibex. And if you've got any asks of our audience, then feel free to close us out with those. Thanks, James, for having me. I'm Joseph Mossel, CEO and co-founder of iBooks Medical Analytics. We develop AI applications for cancer diagnostics and pathology that help pathologists do their work faster and more accurately. Uh, and if anyone out there, a uh, pathologist who wants to join the journey, feel free to reach out to me. It's easy to find me on through our website or on my LinkedIn page. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.